overwhelming motivation called ambition. All effective leaders have the compelling desire to help their own nation, company, or organization achieve its highest potential. Moreover, they all are willing to put themselves on the line in order to achieve that end. Jack Welch is the quintessential business example of ambitious leadership. Most CEOs would have been satisfied with General Electric's 1981 level of performance. Its profits were high, it had blue chips standing on Wall Street, and it was one of the country's most respected corporations. But when Welch assumed leadership of the company that year, he wanted something more for GE. He wanted to make it the world's most competitive company. Welch's motivation and behavior were far from Gandhian. Let's have no illusions on that score but he manifested the essential leadership trait of ambition which clearly distinguished him from the host of more timid and ultimately less successful CEOs who directed the fortunes of corporate America in the 80s. Not only did Welch want true greatness for GE, but he was also committed personally to do all that was necessary to realize the company's full potential. That is appropriate ambition. The Welches of the world realize that at any given time almost all organizations are seriously underperforming. Few companies come anywhere near achieving their potential, whether that is measured by profits, growth, market share, product quality, innovation, customer service, or employee development. Worst, most CEOs and other individuals in positions of titular authority in the public and private sectors either are satisfied with the status quo or are fearful of assuming the personal risk of attempting to transform their organizations in order to achieve greatness. In sharp distinction are those few individuals who have high ambition for themselves and for their organizations. Those who act on that ambition are called leaders. Indeed, Odds are you know that your company or your division, government agency or non-profit organization is significantly underperforming and that's what motivated you to buy this book. And the reason I wrote it is to build on that healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo and then to urge you to change it. My hope is that you will take on the responsibility of leadership. Wherever you work and whatever the managerial level you occupy, you have the opportunity to make things better. I can't promise you will succeed if you take up that challenge, but I can assure you of this much at least. There is no more rewarding task in business than to lead a transformation in which an organization's potential is realized, as there is no more dispiriting condition than to stand by passively on the sidelines in an underperforming institution. Hence, it's in your self-interest and the interest of your organization, that you start to think of yourself as a leader, and to act accordingly. Having said that, I'd be less than candid if I didn't acknowledge how difficult leadership is. Indeed, it is the most difficult of all social tasks to do well. The first obstacles to success are the formidable ones of knowing what to do and how to do it. To help you clear those hurdles, I've distilled in these pages much of what has been learned about leadership since the late 1970s. My sources include Practical lessons that leaders have drawn from their own experiences Findings from research conducted by prominent scholars 
results of a two-year project on strategic leadership conducted by the consulting firm Booz Allen and Hamilton. My own conclusions, based on thirty years of closely observing many inspiring and more than a few disastrously incompetent leaders in the public and private sectors. The bad news is this: despite the considerable effort that has gone into the study of leadership, what is known with scientific certainty about the subject can be stored in a thimble. Worse. Most research has been wasted on futile attempts to measure and classify the multitude of personality types and styles of leaders. That approach is doomed to failure simply because each leader is, in essence, different. And even worse, the psychological focus on individual traits obscures the fundamental fact that leadership isn't a solo act. What truly matters is an organization's overall leadership capacity. Throughout its ranks, perhaps the most significant thing that great leaders have in common is that they don't do a lot of unfocused things. Rather than running around doing what everyone else ought, in fact, to be doing, they focus productively on a small set of actions necessary to cascade leadership down and throughout their organizations. The good news for you is this: what successful leaders do. Is both learnable and replicable. Although there's no way you can learn to be someone else, there's no reason why you can't learn to do what others have successfully done. And everyone who wants to be a leader today now has access to practical knowledge concerning what successful leaders do to create high-performing and self-renewing organizations. Likewise. Important lessons based on the experiences of leaders who have helped followers achieve their potential, and who have developed other leaders, are now available for all to draw on and apply in their own organizations. In choosing the examples cited here, I have opted wherever possible to use familiar names instead of fresh, that is, obscure ones, because my purpose is not biography. I've tried to pick the most common. Most non-controversial and clearest examples possible to focus the reader's attention on each lesson being illustrated. I did not want an essential lesson of leadership to be missed because the reader was questioning whether Madonna is in fact a good example of the issue under discussion. For similar reasons, I've cited few young leaders. Experience shows that it is risky in the extreme. To predicate important lessons on the examples of individuals in the midst of their careers, individuals whose behavior invariably will disappoint or embarrass those who prematurely anoint them as great men and women. Lincoln may be a tired example, but at least we won't be surprised by an article in tomorrow's paper about a grand jury indictment. So, for your benefit and use, here's what leaders do from A to Z. As you see, I've organized the information alphabetically and cut it down into bite-sized chunks you can sample over coffee or between meetings. And although it makes sense to start at the beginning of the alphabet, feel free to dip in anywhere. Apologia. It occurred to me more than once while writing this book that my timing wasn't exactly propitious. So I might as well deal with the bitter reality up front and in an early chapter. Yes, indeed, everyone today is more than a little cynical about leaders and leadership. 
And it isn't just the continuing barrage of revelations about philandering presidents, crooked Congress members, and law-breaking mayors that has caused us to become jaded. In fact, we've learned that even the head of the once-revered United Way has had his hand in the till. Leadership already had a bad name in four-fifths of the world as the result of decades of misrule by dictators, authoritarians, and run-of-the-mill satraps. Who in Europe, Asia, Africa, or Latin America could find anything positive to say about leadership after having experienced the tyranny of a Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Idi Amin, or even a petty despot like Juan Perón? And in an age that has witnessed increasingly equal opportunity to disappoint, the likes of Indira Gandhi, Benazir Bhutto, Imelda Marcos, and Eva Perón have done little to assuage our skepticism about the wisdom of the entire leadership endeavor. In the United States, mercifully, we have been spared the ravages of murderous leadership, yet exposés have unearthed evidence that even those few leaders we so revere that we refer to them by monikers, FDR, Ike, JFK, had feet of clay. Indeed, the more we followers learn about those who govern us, in the Capitol, the State House, and City Hall, the more we become convinced that leaders, rather than followers, benefit from the relationship. You don't have to be totally jaundiced to feel that all we get from our leaders on the left are corruption, self-indulgence, greed, and hypocrisy, while the contributions from leaders on the right are intolerance, incompetence, greed, and hypocrisy. Big difference. The record in the private sector hasn't been quite so dispiriting. Yet even there, it is easier to identify more Neros than heroes, more self-serving egotists than far-sighted innovators and more bureaucrats than builders. At the bottom of the barrel, we've witnessed the grand-scale buffoonery of Bendix's William Agee, General Motors' Roger Smith, Continental's Frank Lorenzo, and R.J.R. Nabisco's super-clown F. Ross Johnson. Finally, Al Dunlap compromised whatever public respect remained for corporate chief executives when he posed for a publicity shot in full Rambo regalia. In all, it's easy to understand why the promise of leadership no longer makes hearts beat with the prospect of pride and glory, and why a lot of smart people today are passing on the opportunity to stand up and lead. Still, yet, on the other hand, without ignoring the bad apples, the inescapable truth is that leadership is not only important, but essential. It is a requirement in any situation in which members of a group disagree about where they should be heading or about what they should be doing. Without leaders to focus efforts toward a common objective, people will run off on their separate ways, and societies will not progress, and organizations will not achieve their aims. Leadership is also the most difficult of all social tasks, and that perhaps accounts for why there are many more examples of failed leaders than of great ones. So what should we take from this? Yes, leadership is hard. It is also indispensable. And it is axiomatic that the more important the endeavor, the harder it is to accomplish. Because leadership is the most important single activity in an organization, should we then be surprised to discover that it is also the hardest? So spare the excuses and get to work. Nobody said this was going to be easy. And what about those bad apples? Yes, they are discouraging, 
The silver lining in the otherwise gloomy picture is that there are also many counterexamples of positive leadership. And the pages of this book are filled with the names of men and women who have led their nations and organizations in ways that have allowed followers to realize their needs. Of course, none of those leaders was or is perfect, and none has completely fulfilled the aspirations of followers. That, alas, is the way of the world. Brownian Motivation Challenging, Stretching, and Other Nonviolent Ways to Overcome Resistance to Change Leaders bring out the best in their followers. First, leaders inspire followers by showing them how good they are capable of becoming, and then they help followers realize their elevated aspirations. That's what Tina Brown did in her six years at The New Yorker. Her official title at that venerable institution was editor but she defined her real job as leading change. She said, The assignment I had been handed was renewal, and renewal would mean change, and the prospect of change was, of course, bound to provoke a measure of consternation. In any organization, the source of consternation about change is, in a word, fear. We resist change because we are afraid we can't cope can't do the new things that are being asked of us, and thus we fear we will fail. We resist taking the risky route of change because it almost always seems more prudent, safer, to keep doing what we know how to do. Why should we walk a tightrope and end up disappointing everyone, especially ourselves, when we fall off? The job of the leader is to overcome that all-too-common lack of self-confidence and to convince followers that we are, in fact, far more capable than we give ourselves credit for being. Come on, the leader challenges. I know you can do it. I know we can do it. Did the leader say we? That makes a difference, doesn't it? For if we're in this together, we can help each other. And the leader starts that process by showing us how, teaching us, and building a safety net to catch us if we should fall off the tightrope while learning to walk it. That's what Tina Brown did. Of course, she did a lot of other things as well, some of them controversial. But what her followers credit her for most was her dedication to developing their capacity to change and to grow. Tina Brown understood that leaders don't change organizations, they change people. She started by changing her own role and even changing herself in the process. Her two fabled predecessors, Harold Ross and William Sean, had been